we are laying the foundation here of a uh, discipleship series that we're doing, Training for the Kingdom. How in this period of time that we find ourselves in, in this epic, uh, it is really a prelude to reality. Reality is coming. That's when the kingdom of God will be set up, the dome in which God is king will be established, and God's purposes for humanity and purposes for, for creation will be attained. Right now is the time when we're deciding whether we'll be born in this kingdom or not, and we're deciding, uh, uh, we're, it's a time where the Lord ref- refines our character and trains us for the job that we'll have to do in the kingdom. Um, I felt led this morning to take us uh, in this direction. We're talking about the right way, the right way to go down a road that leads to the kingdom of God. The Lord really just laid on my heart to spend at least one service where we talk about the wrong way. There is a, a road that leads to life, but that is glorious and noteworthy because there's a road that leads to death. And so I'm going to actually entitle this sermon, uh, the ominous title because it's something of an ominous message the road that leads to death let me read a couple of passages of scripture proverbs chapter 14 says there's a way that seems right to a person but its end is the way of death it seems right to you but its way is death ephesians 4 paul talks about one way that this road to death looks like when he says this i affirm and insist on in the lord You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, as the heathen live, in the futility of their minds. The word futility futility there uh, uh, describes uselessness. Um, It's severed from reality. It's foolish, the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. The light has gone out, Paul is saying. They're alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from the true source of life because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And finally, the word says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Several years ago, I was on a trip to Chicago uh, to attend a conference. And halfway down there, I stopped uh, right around Madison. I stopped at a rest station And uh, when I came out of the rest station, I got into my car and confidently drove back to St. Paul, thinking I was going to Chicago. You ever done that? You come out of a rest, you're just totally disoriented, and and you don't even notice it. So I'm driving back. Now, the problem is that when I drive, I'm I'm kind of an airhead. I get lost in my thoughts, and I, you know, just, I'm not paying much attention to anything. I'm kind of on cruise control, but my thoughts are somewhere else. So about an hour later, and I was already late for this conference. Time was of the essence. An hour later, I see a sign that says, St. Paul, 60 or 90 miles. My heart sinks. Now, here's the funny thing is that um, the, the implications of this were, were serious because it means I was going to miss this conference. I went an hour in the wrong direction. It'll take me an hour just to go back to the, the place where I was at the rest station. And that means I'm two hours behind where I would have been had I not gone the wrong direction. I just lost four hours. I'm going to miss this conference. And I don't want to believe that. So I start to try to convince myself that I'm not going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Somebody put that sign up there as a, as, as a crank. It's, it, this is, it, that can't be true. Or maybe there's another St. Paul that I didn't know of down in, close to Chicago. Or maybe this sign really said, you're now 60 miles out of St. Paul. You know, keep going. You're going the right direction or something. I, I, I didn't want to confront the reality that I was going in the wrong direction. So my mind starts spinning out a story that could uh, justify me believing I was going the right direction. But of course, in time, it was undeniable, and I had to turn around. Now see, here's the thing. We are all on a trip. 
we are going towards a destination. The trip has to do with our character formation. We, we're talking about spiritual formation uh, in this discipleship series. And we sometimes speak of spiritual formation as though it's something that only, you know, radical disciples do. When in fact, it's something we are all doing. We are all being spiritually formed. Our characters are becoming solidified. With every decision that we're making, with every thought that we think, we are going further down a certain direction, becoming uh, a certain kind of a person. And the question that we need to ask is this. Are, are we the kind of person that's compatible with the kingdom of God, the rule of his, uh, of his love, so that when that, uh, when that arrives, we will be consistent with it? Or are we becoming the kind of person that's not compatible with that? An ultimate question. Ultimately, ultimately the Bible describes these two ultimate destinations as heaven and hell. Now, I'm told that the two most unpopular topics to preach about in American Christianity are, number one, money, number two, hell. And I spent the spring talking about money, and tonight, today I'm going to talk about hell. So my rating's got to be dropping seriously here. I, I... And the day I start to be concerned about that, will somebody either fire me or shoot me? Because we're not called to be concerned about ratings, amen? We're called to preach truth. We're called to deal with reality. Christianity isn't just a sort of up-with-humanity pep fest. It's, it, it's dealing with truth. And one area of truth that the Bible talks about, so we've got to talk about, is this road to death. This way that seems right to a person. You're convinced it's the right thing, but in fact, you're going down the road to death. So I'm going to talk about four steps or four stages on this road to death. Uh, as we do it, we'll learn a lot about the road that leads to life because it's the opposite of that. And as we're, we go through this, there may be some people in the auditorium here this morning. There was 15 in the last service and 12 last night who will wake up to the reality that they're not going on the road that leads to life and will turn around what the Bible calls repentance and throw themselves uh, at the mercy and love of God. Uh, that's the prayer this morning. Four stages in this road to death. Stage number one, step number one is that we shut God out. We shut God out. The psalmist said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's also the the case that the, the first step of foolishness is to not fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I don't believe that the fear of the Lord is the main achievement of wisdom. As we grow in our relationship with God, there's always this supreme reverence for God, but I don't think there should be an element of dread because you come to know God as he is in Jesus Christ. He's your, 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 your groom. You have this passionate marriage-like relationship with him, and it's, 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 it's filled with joy and celebration. But the first step of wisdom, the first thing that a wise person does, it's the first evidence of wisdom, is that there is a fear of God. The recognition, the acknowledgement that you have to do, deal with the supreme being. And the first step down the road to death is to not do that, to black God out, to ignore God. And when we do that, we sever ourselves off from the, the true source of life. I am sometimes amazed at how easy it is for us to block God out. We have an incredible capacity to do that. I sometimes look at, at uh, people who are living in um, ways that by anyone's standard would be grotesquely immoral, and the thing that I- impresses me, I guess, is that they seem to be so confident in that. They, they, there doesn't seem to be a pain of conscience with that. There, there seems to, there's almost an attitude that, that they know what life's all about. They know what's going on. They're calling the shots. Uh, they, they, they understand life and therefore know that the life that they're pursuing is appropriate given, given the nature of reality. And the question that I wonder about is this. How do they get that confidence? 
The truth of the matter is, here's the first step of wisdom. The truth of the matter is that we don't choose to be created. We just are. We pop into existence. Here we are. And we don't have a clue what's going on. Life is this incredible, mysterious, odd thing. I'm conscious, but no one can tell me how I'm conscious. You know that? We haven't, with all of our advances in neuroscience, we don't know what consciousness is. But here I am. That's weird. I'm conscious. I'm conscious of you. You're conscious of me, hopefully. And uh, we don't understand what that is. We don't even understand what matter is. What, what is this solid thing? We're real. We exist here. This is bizarre. It's wild. It's amazing. You say, oh, the matter is simply condensed energy. Fine, but what is energy? Well, it makes our, our little energy measuring machines go blip and bleep in certain ways, and that's all we can say about it. The, the isness of reality, the, the, the essence of things is beyond us. It's a mystery. It's a fantastic, unfathomable kind of thing. And that ought to make us stop and wonder. We didn't create that. Who did? And you look at the stars in the sky, and you see there a magnitude and awesome power that, that takes your breath away if you're looking at it clearly. And you didn't create that in wisdom. The first step of wisdom is to ask the question, well, then who did? Who's got that kind of power? And you look at the beauty of the sunset or the mountains or the clouds or whatever, and, and you know you didn't create that beauty, so the question is, who did? You look at the complexity of the human eye or the human mind or even a simple leaf, it's got a complexity there that just boggles the mind. You didn't create and think of that complexity. Who did? The first step of wisdom is to, is to take a humble stance and to say, I don't know much about this life. I don't know what's going on. But there is a power and there is a wisdom with whom I have to do. And I got to put that, that, that question, that issue on the front burner. Blaise Pascal had this experience, and a number of us have had similar things where before he was a believer, looking out at the starry skies, he said all of a sudden he was overcome with a horrifying thought. He looked at the power that is there and the mind and the intelligence that's displayed in these stars. And the question arose, is this power happy with me or disgruntled with me? Uh, uh, am I at odds with the one who created this universe? The Bible says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of, the, uh, of an angry God. The question that should be on the forefront of everyone's mind is, how do I get right with God? Uh, what, what, what's the purpose for my existence? Why am I here? What does God expect of me? And it takes measures to find that out. But we don't. We, we, we block God out. In fact, the Bible says all of us block God out. Uh, It's by God's grace and through God's spirit that any of us know who he is. We block God out. Why do we do that? Why do we ignore this, this obvious question? And the answer is this. There is something, there is something attractive, is there not, about the foolish thought that we little people on this little planet in this little solar system in this little galaxy in this galaxy cluster in some remote corner of this very, very, very big universe, we think we can be God. We, there's something attractive about being Lord of your own life, uh, thinking that you made up all the rules, you call all the shots. Uh, you know, we, 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 there's something that, that, that's attractive about moving into the center of the garden, as it says in Genesis 3, and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We get to define for ourselves what is good. We define for ourselves what is evil. We can do our own thing. We don't answer to no Nobody know how. There's something that's attractive about that. And the minute we go in that direction, we're headed down the road that leads to death. It seems right unto you, but it's the road that leads to death. The first step is shutting God out. We become, as Paul says, aliens to God, foreigners to God. And that's a scary place to be. The second step on the road that leads to death is idolatry. That's why throughout the Old Testament, God was trying to hammer home to the Israelites two things. Number one, 
I'm, I, I am the God with whom you have to do. Put me first. Number two, don't have idols. Idols are anything that plays a God role in your life. See, here's the thing. We, we, we don't create our own natures. Uh, we like to think we do, but, but we don't. Our nature has some non-negotiable needs. Ultimately, they come down to the need to, to have worth and, and, and to be loved unconditionally by God. Uh, but it gets manifested in a lot of different ways. These needs don't go away. We try to deaden them and desensitize them, but they do not go away. God created us with these needs because God wants to, out of the abundance of his love, meet those needs. But if we're not turning to God to get those needs met, we have to try to get them met on our own. And when we do that, we create idols. Historically, the uh, two main groups that idols fall under is there are, there are sensual, physical idols, and then there are religious idols. Let me say a word about both of those. Sensual idolatry is, is, is the idolatry of the body, the idolatry of, of, of physical experience. It was the idolatry that Paul's speaking about in Ephesians 4. It was the idolatry that really was typified by the ancient Romans. Uh, we are made by God to, 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 to live on the edge. It's true. We're made by God to, to experience deeply, to feel deeply, to be fully alive and to be fully awake. That's how God created us. But if we don't do that in relationship with God, we try to experience full life out of relationship with God. And one of the primary ways to do that is by having pinnacle experiences with your body. Dallas Willard in his great book, Renovations of the Heart, says that, that uh, really there, there's the, the two things that, that deliver the most kick, that make you feel most alive, that deliver the most bang for the buck are sex and violence. And so people try to feel fully alive. The mechanism that wants to feel fully alive is from God, but the way they're trying to feel fully alive is not. And it's just by, by having uh, extreme experiences in sex and violence, uh, that, that, that becomes an idol in their life, and it's a way that they begin to try to feel fully human. And so you find throughout cultures, throughout history, a, a gravitation, in many of them anyways, towards increasingly degenerate forms of sex and violence, and often those two go uh, hand in hand. Uh, they, 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 they go together. Find even the worship of sexuality, the worship of penises, the worship of, of vaginas, the worship of fertility and things of that sort. It's, it's an idol. And, and the idea here is that, that uh, uh, you can feel fully alive when you're participating in this. Of course, it doesn't satisfy, and we get dulled to it. The body can only take so much. So it's like a drug that you have to take increasingly more lethal doses to get the same kick. And that's why there is, with individuals and in cultures, a degeneration that takes place, sex and violence. And certainly you can see in our culture a direction, a, a, a tendency in this direction. We're not where the ancient Romans were, but we're inching our way there. In our culture, sex and violence, uh, it, it loops into the whole consumer mindset. And so we use sex and violence to sell movies. We use it to sell records. We use it to sell products. It's, it, it permeates our, our entire culture. That's why our culture is increasingly pornographic. That's why the rate of por- pornography addiction is skyrocketing especially among males, especially through the internet. It, it's just, it, it just bombards us. <sighs> Moving in that direction. The sensual idolatry. But there's another form of idolatry. It's religious idolatry. And it looks a whole lot better than sensual idolatry, but actually Jesus suggests it's, it, it's worse, precisely because it seems to look better. Whereas uh, the sensual idolatry was typified by the Greeks, the religious idolatry is more typified by the Pharisees. It's, it goes like this. We are built with this need to feel like we're in right relationship with God. We're, we're built to pursue a right relationship with God. It's an internal mechanism that will not go away. 
But if you've, if you've pushed God out of the picture, the true God out of the picture, if you've severed your relationship with the true God, well, that mechanism now is going to hone on in other things. And the two things that deliver the greatest kick for religious idolaters are your own works and judging other people. You set up a shallow system whereby there's certain deeds that you think are righteous, and while you do those deeds, you get a kick. It's like, okay, God likes me because I do these nine things. And, and, and then you, you evaluate other people who don't do those nine things, and you stand over them and feel superior. Whereas people involved in sensual idolatry feed off of their sensual experience. Religious idolaters feed off of other people. I'm not like that, and so I'm righteous. And there's this drive to feel like you're right with God on the basis of what you do. And while the sensual idolatry kind of typifies our pop culture, um, most of the songs that are sung in pop culture are really devotionals to the sex-violent God. Uh, it, it typifies pop culture. Uh, the, the religious idolatry is very prevalent in American religious culture. And while it looks a whole lot better, Jesus suggests it's worse. He says the prostitutes, he says to the Pharisees, the prostitutes get into heaven before you. The first step is shutting God out. The second step is idolatry. The third step. And now the ominous nature of this message becomes ominouser. The third step is futile thinking. Paul also talked about this. Futile thinking of a darkened mind. Here's the thing. The idols don't work. They don't satisfy. You you pursue them and pursue them, but there's an emptiness there. There's something inside of you that says you're going in the wrong direction. Just like with me, I was going back to St. Paul. And something said, I'm, that sign said, I'm not going in the right direction. But I didn't want to believe that. And so I constructed a worldview, as it were, that would justify me going on the road that I'm going. This is what happens to, to us when we sever ourselves from God. We block God out. We get an idol to meet a need. There's something that says this isn't the right way to go. We're not careful with it. So our mind now severs itself from reality, and we construct a worldview that makes us feel at home in the sin that we're living in. Futile thinking, useless thinking, foolish thinking. We convince ourselves we're going in the right direction. The mind has an incredible capacity to delude itself. Have you ever noticed that? To just live in delusion. And, and we, we, we can't take living in cognitive dissonance for too long. So rather than adjust our life to reality, we try to adjust reality to our life. And we create a worldview. The worldview that's very prevalent in our culture now that, that sort of justifies sensual idolatry uh, it's sometimes explicitly taught. Most of the time, though, it's just sort of presupposed. And it's the view that we are, after all, just matter. We're just matter in motion. We are just, you know, a- animals that evolve by time and chance. And we're, we're just complex protoplasm, sort of walking, talking, combustions of chemical processes. That's all we are. And see, if you, if you can believe that, well, then there's no accountability. There's, you know, you're, you're just an animal, and so you, you just do what an animal might do. And along with this is the, the belief that since we, we are just, you know, walking, talking, chemical combustions, there are no absolutes. We cannot know truth. We can only know personal preferences. Uh, there's no moral absolutes. There's no epistemological absolutes. Uh, and so everything's relative. And so that means we're accountable to nobody. Yippee! And that means we can do our own thing. We can call our own shots. We can be our own boss. And this is what we're looking for all, all, all along. So if you create a worldview where that is true, well, then you can live consistent with it. But see, it's foolish. Paul says it's foolish, futile thinking. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist, to, if you're just willing to look at it, to see how, how futile and, and foolish this way of thinking is. Nobody lives consistent with this. They say they do, but they don't. No one lives consistent with the view that you're just a walking, talking combination of chemical combustion and that there is no absolutes. Think about this. 
chemical combustions. They're, they're like a, a burp. If I burp, that was a chemical combustion. It's, sorry. Uh, it's just a burp. But you wouldn't say, oh, that was a true burp or a false burp. It's just a burp. Chemical combustions don't have any truth value. They just happen. That's why we go, oops, when it happens. Okay, uh, a thunderclap. It's not true or false. It's just a thunderclap. A, a firecracker goes off. It, 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 chemical com- combustions just happen. Well, now, if I am simply a walking, talking combination of chemical combustions, then I just happen. I have no, there's no truth to what I'm saying. There's no truth value, including the statement, I'm nothing but a, a combination of chemical combustions. You see, if I am nothing, if I can be reduced to mere matter and motion, then everything I'm saying right now is simply, and everything I'm thinking right now is simply a complex thunderbolt, a complex firecracker going off, and really just a complex burp. And that can't be true or false. But the person saying, I am just matter, I'm just chemical combustion, they intend to speak truth, right? They're saying, this is what's true. But what they're really saying is, this is what's true. I can't speak any truth. In other words, it's a contradiction. Did you follow me on that whole thing? That's why Paul says it's the futility of their thinking. They presuppose that their view is wrong in the assertion that their view is true. Same thing is true with uh, the, the, the claim that there are no absolutes. Uh, is that absolutely true? Think about that. Or they claim that there is no absolute morality. Uh, you know, people, I, I, the only ones who believe that are locked up, thank God, in hospitals, and they're, they're sociopaths. Everybody else knows on some level that, in fact, there are moral absolutes. You take their parking space and see how relative they are about that. You know, spit in their face, see how relative, steal their, 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 their diamond and see how relative they are. In fact, just disagree with them a lot of times and you'll see how relativistic they are. They're like, no, you're wrong, you're absolutely wrong, there are no truths. You see, no one lives this way consistently. But the worldview, it permeates, it permeates the matrix, if you've been around for any, any length of time, the matrix that conditions us. And when you condition people with a belief long enough, they eventually begin to act like that. You tell people at a young enough age and tell them persistent enough that they're nothing but animals, and sooner or later they start to act like animals. And tell them there is no truth and there is no morality. And you know what? You, you, you raise a generation of amoral people. And I submit to you that if you're looking for an explanation for the level of chaos we have in our society and for the amorality that permeates our society, for the scandals that happen in high places in the business world, for the breakup of of families and for the violence among the kids, I don't think you have to look any farther than this. They're just sort of manifesting the worldview that's being fed them in a million different ways. It's the presupposition of everything around us. Most movies you you watch, uh, just ask the question, or even magazines that you read, ask the question, what is the worldview presupposed in this movie or in this magazine? Uh, It is is the animal materialistic worldview. Uh, You know, it's it's not taught explicitly, but it's just sort of presupposed. Hi, my name's Greg. You're Sally. I like you. Let's go to bed. Boom, that's all. That's natural. In fact, you're weird if you don't see how natural that is. And it's that of-course-ness that saturates into our brains and produces the generation that we have now. It's futile thinking, but it, at least it's, it allows you to go on with your sensual idolatry without having any cognitive dissonance about it. The same thing is true of religious idolatry. They have to create a worldview that, makes, that allows them to feel righteous about the nine pathetic things they do to get righteous and, and to stand in judgment over other people. So what usually happens in one way or another is we, we, we concoct a God after our own making, a God who is this sort of petty God who is shallow and, and doesn't look on the insides of people, just looks on the outside of people, and a God who is uh, you know, sort of an accountant God who is more interested in behavior than people. And they create that God, and then they try to impress them with the nine things that they do and, and standing in judgment over other people. But it's futile, it's useless, it's silly, it's foolish thinking. 
If you've ever met a true Pharisee and you're not bought into the Pharisee system, it's obvious that, in fact, they're not righteous. Jesus wasn't giving a word of knowledge when he pointed out to the Pharisees that they're hypocrites. Everybody knew that. He says, yeah, you, 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 you do your little tithing thing, you do these little deeds over here, but what about love? What about the weightier matters of the law? What about love? What about justice? What about treating people with need? You, 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 you don't see that at all. It, it's futile to think that you can get yourself right with God on the basis of the nine or 19 pathetic things you think you can do to impress him. He's not impressed. He sees the heart, and you know in your heart you're a sinner. Wake up to that reality. He sees your mind. He sees your motives. He sees what's really going on, and your little deeds that you think are so righteous— he calls filthy rags. What God is saying to the religious idolater and what he's saying to the sensual idolater is this. You're going down a road of death. Turn around. Turn around. Wake up to reality. Get out of the futility and uselessness and foolishness of your, uh, uh, of your thinking. What's true is that there is a truth. What's true is that there is a God. What's true is that he created you because he loves you and he wants to live with you and share his life with you throughout eternity. But he can't give that to you unless you're willing to turn around around and accept him on his terms, not your terms. What's true is that you can't make yourself righteous with God on the basis of your own behavior. It's already too late. He's all holy and you've already blown that shtick. Turn around, wake up to the reality that you're a sinner and that you have no right and no place to stand in judgment over other people and throw yourself at the foot of the cross. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to robe you in his righteousness. He wants to redeem you. He wants to fill you with his spirit. He wants to give you life. And the sensual idolater, the the kick you're trying to get by your ever-increasing escapades and sexuality or whatever it might be, the kick you're trying to get is just a surrogate surrogate imitation of the life that God wants to give you. The mechanism to want to be fully alive and want to be passionate, that's a godly mechanism. But the way you're living it out is not godly. In fact, it's leading to death. You want a kick. You want to feel fully alive. You want to feel fully awake. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He'll give you his life and his joy and his peace and his power. And there's a place for, for, for living physical life to the max. But the place is to do it under his reign, not in opposition to his reign. Then it leads to life. Turn around. The Bible calls it repenting. It just means metanoia in Greek. Turn around. Turn around. Face reality. Quit creating an illusion. And the fourth stage, the fourth step, and the most ominous of all of them, is that this road leads to death. What the Bible calls eternal death. What the Bible calls hell. And I know that it is not popular in our culture, not even in religious culture, to talk about hell. People get offended when you talk about hell. How dare you talk about hell? That's not nice. You know, Paul said that there'll be a time when people will just say, they'll have itching ears, and they'll say, will you scratch my ears? We just like to have our ears massaged. And uh, they only want to hear what they want to hear. That's another form of that delusional, futile thinking. We, we have to take reality on God's terms. We don't get to choose it. And here's what the question you need to ask is not whether you're offended or not. You know, I'm sorry if it offends you, but the question is, is, is it true? If a doctor comes in the office and says, yeah, I'm sorry, but, but you've got cancer all over the place, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm so offended. How dare you say that I've got cancer? I, 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 I don't want to believe that, and I, therefore it's not true. Now, that's a totally inappropriate response. The only response that's appropriate is to say, is that true? Is it based on, 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 on you know, good evidence? And what can I do about it? 
So we've got to deal with this road that leads to death. There is such a road. There is such a road. In fact, you'll only appreciate the road that leads to life if you understand the road that you would have been on were it not for the grace of God. There's a road that leads to death. The end result of it is hell. The Bible says people are lost. Lost. It talks about the world being lost. Something is lost when it's not where it's supposed to be, or it's not going in the direction it's supposed to go. Humanity is lost when it's not in congruity with God's reign, with the reign of love that shall be fully manifested when he returns. You're lost. You're not going in the right direction. Something that is lost is something that isn't fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. At least once or twice a week, I lose my keys. And while they're lost, they're no use to me. I can't use them for the purpose for which they were created because I can't find them. The Bible says Jesus came to find the lost, to seek and save that which was lost. People are lost. And the end result of being lost if you're never found is what the Bible describes as hell. The word for hell in Greek is Gehenna. It it referred literally to the dump outside of Jerusalem. It was a place outside of Jerusalem. It's where the sewage of Jerusalem ran. It's where they threw out all the garbage. Anything that was no longer useful got thrown into Gehenna. Uh, They would even, sometimes when, when vile criminals were executed, they weren't allowed to be buried. They didn't get the dignity of a burial, and they'd throw their corpses in, the, the, in Gehenna, this valley. Uh, and so it was known as a place festering with disease, with maggots. That's what the, Jesus teaching about the worm that doesn't die. It, it was just a vile, vile place. It was horrific. And what Jesus is saying is this. If you don't align yourself with the purpose for which God created you, you're becoming useless to the kingdom of God, and all useless things get thrown out, as you all know, in this, in, in this dump, in this valley of, of Gehom, what is called Gehenna. The, the, the metaphors, there's a lot of different metaphors that are used to describe hell. The main ones are eternal death, eternal corruption, uh, and uh, eternal destruction, and eternal perishing. And scholars debate whether the eternality, the finality of that is one where you endure it consciously or whether it's speaking about something that, that happens and it's irreversible after it happens. Uh, it, it's, it's eternal in its consequence. But the main point of the metaphors are these. They speak of finality and horror. The tragedy of a life that missed out on life and now is fit only to be thrown into this valley. And it's a real state that people gravitate to. Now maybe ask the question, and it's a good question, how could, it, how could an all-loving God, if God loves us so much, how could he send people to hell? And the short answer to that question I submit to you is this. In a real sense, he doesn't. People send themselves to hell. The one thing God could not do if, if his goal was to have people participate in love is he couldn't coerce us or make us into robots that have to go his way. We have a choice to go a different way. And there comes a point where God lets us do that. It says that Jesus said in John chapter 3 that this is, this is judgment. Judgment is that light came into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light. They loved darkness. They wanted darkness. They chose darkness. Condemnation is simply when God says, okay, if that's the way, if, if you are irreversibly committed to going that way, I let you go that way. That's why the Bible often describes God as giving people over to judgment in Romans chapter 1. Uh, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God gave them over to do what they wanted to do. God gives up on them. God strives with a heart, calls, pleads with cries to get a heart to turn around, but there is a point of no return. The C.S. Lewis said this, if hell is eternal, and it is, then it's, it's, it's eternal from our side, not God's. Or it's locked from the inside. And what he was getting at here is this. We, get, we progress in this world and get to the point where 
our choices become solidified into our character. You've maybe heard this, this slogan. It's, it's a piece of ancient wisdom. That you reap a thought, you sow a thought, you'll reap a deed. Sow a deed, you'll reap a habit. Sow a habit, you'll reap a character. Sow a character long enough, and you reap a destiny. Aristotle said that we begin with our, with, with, by making decisions, but in the end, our decisions have made us. We are right now in this probationary epic, this prelude to reality. We are in the process of, of being formed to, be, to, to become certain kinds of people, not just people who choose certain kinds of things, but now our character is that kind of person. And in the end, when all is said and done, we're either compatible or incompatible with the kingdom of God. We're either fit for the kingdom or we're fit for the, for the refuse valley outside of the kingdom. I met a lady, I, I've shared this several times before, but it, it made such an impact on me, and it just illustrates this so perfectly, I want to share it again. When I was 19, I, was, I volunteered for a Catholic organization that delivered, among other things, that delivered food on Christmas Eve uh, to shut-ins, people who had no family, and usually they're old ladies, and, and, and we, we'd, we'd, we'd deliver food and visit with them a little bit. I was given the assignment of going to this one lady's house, but they told me, uh, don't even try to visit with her. She is uh, a witch. She is an old hag. She's mean-spirited. Just give her the food and then get out of there. So I went to this lady's house, knocked on the door. She opens the door, and honestly, her face was scary. I think a lot of times when we age, our character gets manifested in our face. And there can be a beautiful way of being uh, a senior citizen uh, or a, a, a non-beautiful way. It has to do with the kind of character that is expressed on the face. She had a, a, a scowl etched on her face. It was like her permanent posture. It, 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 it was just like, you know, you think, gosh, it, must, it, it takes a lot of work to make that kind of face. You, you do it so naturally. But see, her... It was, it was scary. She was ugly, all right? She was ugly. This is an ugly look. And to my, I gave her the food and, and said, Merry Christmas. And to my surprise, she said, you know, do you want to come in? And I think it was more curiosity than anything else where I said, yes, I, I, I'll come in. And I spent some time visiting with her. Now, as I was visiting with her, we're talking about weather, some small talk stuff. But I noticed a picture on the wall that was of this stunningly beautiful woman, one of these 1920 kind of pictures where they never smiled. But she was just beautiful. And so I said, oh, who's the lady on the wall? And I tried not to act too shocked when she told me that it was her. Because what I was thinking is, what on earth happened here? Uh, this was gorgeous. There was a radiant in her face. There was this calmness. And now she's just like, just so mean pruned up, you know? Um, well, that got me being nosy, so I started asking a lot of questions. Uh, and I asked her, did she ever get married? Did she ever have kids? And the answer was no. So I said, why? Because I'm sure you had opportunities. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, and she told me this story. When, when that picture was taken, she was like the snow queen or the homecoming queen of Stillwater, something like that. And she was just known by everybody as this radiant beauty. Three days before she was supposed to get married, shortly after this picture was taken, her, her, her fiancé, I think his name was Charlie, uh, ran off with her sister, and they got married. And her heart was broken, but even worse, her pride, she was humiliated. And she started telling me about this, and the wrinkles in her face intensified further. And then she told me with a sense of triumph, I mean, this was the crazy thing, a, a sense of victory about how throughout the next 50 years they tried to reconcile with her. They pleaded with her for forgiveness. They apologized. Uh, they wanted to make amends, and she would not give them the time of day. Oh, no. She, she wouldn't eat, bother. To, she never spoke with them again. 
Uh, she wouldn't respond to their phone calls. She wouldn't respond to their cards. In fact, she wouldn't even talk to anyone who would talk to them. So she managed to alienate everybody in her life. And she's telling me, like, this was a, a sense of victory. And even when they died, she wouldn't give them the satisfaction of going to the funeral or even sending a card. She wasn't going to do that. And there's this triumph in her voice as her scowl intensifies. And she's locked. And I'm thinking, lady, you are in my definition of hell. No one else in the real world even knows that you exist, but you're here, you know, it's like, like Milton says, Satan says in, in Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than to be a servant in heaven. Well, you've got your victory. You love darkness. Boy, you really showed them, man. You, you just proved it. A life utterly, utterly wasted. And as far as I could see, it was locked from the inside. There was no possibility of her now choosing differently. She, she was no longer a person who chose to be bitter. She just was a bitter person. And she liked it that way. I imagine that when she was 20 or 25 or maybe even 50 or maybe even 60, uh, that she had the possibility of, of buckling under, of saying, okay, I forgive you, of making amends, of choosing love over hatred and forgiveness over bitterness. She had the capacity. And I can't judge her now even. I don't know if, she's, if, if, if it was utterly gone when I saw her, but so far as I could see, it was utterly extinguished. You see, we become the decisions that we make. We're in the process of being spiritually formed, and the question is, are you being formed in the right direction or the wrong direction? The Bible says, when you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did in the wilderness. You see, here, the thing is, is, God's love lasts forever. His mercy lasts forever. His arms are always outstretched. I can promise you that in, in, in five years, uh, he'll still love you and want to forgive you, but the question is, will you want it? Will you see it? Windows of opportunity close. That's what this, this journey is all about. So God calls on us, as we are right here, right now, to turn around. Turn around. There comes a point, and this is the most, the most ominous, serious thing about life, is that we don't even control, ultimately, our own wants. We have, a, we, have a, we have a span of time where we can choose to go one way or the other. But in time, the decision makes us. I've known people who've resisted God and they saw that they were supposed to go a certain way. They said no. They walked away from it saying, well, you know, I, since God's all loving, he'll be there in two years. I first want to go this way in two years. Two years later, they don't have the clarity they had. Two, year, two years later, they don't have the clarity they had. They don't have the desires. They don't want it. It's an awesome thing. Today's the day to turn. So would you close your eyes and pray? I'm going to ask this question. It may even be that there's some here who are scared that you've gone too far. Maybe I'm scaring the kajibers out of you. And I don't mean that this isn't a scare attack. It's just, it's just reality. But the, 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 you maybe are thinking it's too late for you because maybe there are things, even believers here, even disciples, there's things in your life that you, don't, that you know shouldn't be there, but you don't want to get rid of them. It doesn't mean that it's too late. If you can pray this prayer, be honest with God. Always be honest with God. He only deals in the, in the commodity of reality. And honestly say, God, I don't want to get rid of this. But I want to want to get rid of this. That's the most fundamental prayer we can pray. It's like David prayed, Lord, renew my heart. Search me, O God. Renew my heart. Create in me a right spirit. You can't do it on your own. Right now, I want to ask this question. Are there some here in this room right now where maybe for the first time, but maybe you've known this for a long time, it doesn't matter, but you see right here and right now that you've been going down a road that leads to death. You've been blocking God out. You've been being Lord of your own life. Maybe you've been involved in sensual idolatry, maybe religious idolatry, or, or maybe, maybe neither of those so far as you know, but you know that Jesus Christ isn't Lord of your life. 
He is with bleeding palms reaching out to you saying, will you turn around? Will you turn around? And if you're here and you're in that situation, I want to pray for you. This is the beginning of the turn, what the Bible calls repentance. Would you just raise your hand very high? And I'm going to pray with you. And we'll all pray this prayer together with you. I see over here on the left, several hands going up. Over here, wonderful, praise God. In the middle, and, uh, dozens of hands around this auditorium. Apprentices of Jesus Christ, disciples, be praying here. Who else? Who else? Just raise your hand. He made it so simple, and yet it has eternal consequences. In the middle there, a number of people. Keep them raised up high. You're just committing to God. You're just committing to God. Anybody else? Anybody else? In the front here. Wonderful. Oh, God, God is just dancing the jig when, 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 when he sees people. This is why he died. This is why he created you. Get on the road that leads to life. Anybody else? Just, you say, I surrender. You're not making a pledge to a self-improvement program here. This is, this is simply a call for a need. You need the life of Christ in you, and he's more than willing to give it. Anybody else? Over here, another person, another couple people. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, there's nothing magical about the prayer we're going to pray here. This isn't a hocus-pocus thing. It's just a commitment of your heart. And we're going to join with you in this prayer. But it's like a wedding vow. Pray it from your heart. And it's a decisive moment when you're simply saying, oops, I'm going to St. Paul, but I'm supposed to be going to Chicago. I'm going to turn around. This is your turning point. You're going to turn around here. So pray this prayer. We'll all join with you. Confess it with your mouth. Say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I've been going the wrong way. I've been doing my own thing. I've been calling my own shots. I've been being my own boss. But I want to turn right now. Help me turn. I thank you for dying for me. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to come and live in me and empower me to go down the road of life, to be a disciple of you, Change me, Lord. Change my heart. I surrender everything over to you. In Jesus' name. Wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Wonderful. That's wonderful.